the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. We're glad to have you with us. I'm using my Lauren Bacall voice today, although it may sound more like Marge Simpson to you. Voice still a little scratchy, but... We're going to soldier on. Today on the program, we're going to talk with Tim Shoemaker. He's the author of the very best hands-on, kind of dangerous family devotions. 52 activities your kids will never forget. They are creative, I'll tell you that, and he'll join us to talk more about that uh, later this hour. Also, we're going to talk in the 5 o'clock hour with Mary Claire Amsalem. She's the Policy Analyst, Education Policy Studies Institute for Family, Community, and Opportunity at the Heritage Foundation We'll talk about the uh, Im- the impact that the proposed student loan cancellation schemes would have not only on students, but on the uh, universities and colleges uh, that whose loans would be forgiven and for the economy in general. So we'll talk with her about that a bit later in the program. Also want to remind you the first of two debates among at least 20 of the uh, Democratic hopefuls uh, begins tonight on NBC, 7 o'clock p.m. our time on Channel Eight, if you're interested in uh, this two-hour event, one of the frustrations I'm certain for every candidate on that stage and for people listening is the limited amount of time that each one of these participants is going to have to actually try to express uh, their um, their initiatives, their priorities, and so on. Uh, this first uh, group uh, is still being referred to by some as the kids' table because Elizabeth Warren is only the only top-tier candidate in that debate, but nonetheless. They will each be vying for the support and attention of the American people uh, in that um, in order to find a seat at the next uh, Democratic debate, you're going to have to raise a significantly higher uh, amount of money uh, to participate and to uh, have uh, more people uh, ask uh, that you be included in this ongoing process. So that begins tonight, 7 o'clock p.m., and that will be repeated tomorrow with the second group of Democratic candidates, again on NBC. First, taking a look at some of the uh, headlines. It uh, it looks like uh, critics who thought they had heard the last from former special counsel Robert Mueller in the ongoing President Trump-Russia collusion saga have been proven wrong. Mueller has agreed to testify before the House Judiciary and Intelligence Committees on the 17th of next month after they subpoenaed Mueller on Tuesday, according to the committee's chairman, Representatives Jerry Nadler and Adam Schiff, uh, both Democrats, New York, California, respectively. Well, House Democrats have fought to get access to Mueller and his unredacted report on Russian interference in the 2016 presidential election and whether President Trump obstructed justice. Weeks of negotiations between the Democrats, the Justice Department ultimately resulted in the subpoena. It's been learned that Mueller, who agreed to appear only under a subpoena, uh, that the subpoena was friendly, Perhaps a bigger question is, what do Democrats hope to achieve with Mueller's testimony? You might remember that uh, press conference he held just a week or so ago in which he indicated that he's already spoken, and that is through the Mueller report, and that anything that he would offer in a 
face-to-face hearing would simply be a restatement of what's already been said. Well, the news of his scheduled appearance has already overshadowed this week's scheduled primary debates and could be addressed by all 20 presidential candidates over the two-night event in Miami. Some GOP lawmakers, uh, Representative Matt Gates of Florida, a Judiciary Committee member, warned that Democrats could be planting the seeds of impeachment by surprise, but Representative Mark Meadows, also a Republican, says Mueller better be prepared for a GOP cross-examination when he testifies. They have questions, too. Alan Dershowitz says the Democrats are shooting themselves in the foot with the Mueller subpoena. Democrats will regret issuing a subpoena to former special counsel Robert Mueller, according to the famed legal scholar. Uh, He says uh, he argues rather that they appear to have overlooked that Republican lawmakers also will have an opportunity to question Mueller and highlight weaknesses and potential biases in his investigation and report. And Mueller cannot refuse to answer questions from Republicans not covered by privilege, Dershowitz said. The Ingram uh, angle, um, the program he was speaking on, he went on to say that I'm trying to stop them from shooting themselves in the foot. In separate uh, column, Dershowitz writes uh, that Mueller should refuse to say anything about the investigation of Trump and his campaign beyond what is already in his report. And as mentioned, the road to the 2020 presidential election will heat up, starting up, starting rather with the first debate among the Democratic primary um, hopefuls tonight. Uh, It'll take place over two consecutive nights starting today because so many qualified for the first round of uh, debate. The candidates were split up randomly in two groups. I think they cast lots, quite literally. The two-hour debates will kick off at um, 7 p.m. Pacific time in Miami, Florida on both days. A total of 20 candidates, 10 each night, will debate. Well, they'll converse. I'm not sure debate is the right word. Tonight's participants will include... Uh, Julian Castro, former Secretary of House and Urban Development. John Delaney, a former congressman from Maryland. U.S. Representative uh, Tulsi Gabbard of Hawaii. Washington Governor Jay Inslee. U.S. Senator Amy Klobuchar of Minnesota. Beto O'Rourke, a former congressman from Texas. U.S. Representative Tim Ryan of Ohio. And U.S. Senator Elizabeth Warren of Massachusetts. Well, the House approved a $4.5 billion supplemental spending bill on Tuesday night to address the humanitarian crisis at the U.S.-Mexico border and to provide additional funding for food, water, medical services, uh, stronger protections for unaccompanied children, among other things, setting up a showdown between the Democratic-led House and the Republican-led Senate. Now, one would think you could come to strong agreement at least on this point, but no, we're talking about Washington partisans and politicians. Well, the House bill, which passed 230 to 195, included specifics that would prevent the Trump administration from allowing any funding to go forward supporting immigration and customs enforcement or ICE personnel at the border, likely to become a point of contention with the Republicans on the Senate side. The president warned uh, yesterday, or on Monday rather, that he would veto the House bill if it passed earlier on uh, Earlier today, Acting Commissioner John Sanders of U.S. Customs and Border Protection resigned amid ongoing controversy over conditions at migrant detention facilities along the U.S.-Mexico border that he really has very little control over without an act of Congress. Well, the prosecution in the court-martial of Navy SEAL Eddie Gallagher rested its case yesterday, ending six days of testimony in which SEALs accused one of their own of stabbing to death an ISIS prisoner in Iraq in 2017. Special Operations Chief Gallagher is charged with premeditated murder in a trial that has frayed the reputation of the SEAL community. The Navy's lead investigator took the witness stand Tuesday for cross-examination and was accused of vindictiveness, incompetence, and a rush to judgment. Gallagher's defense is expected to begin its um, 
case and show jurors videotaped testimony from an Iraqi general who handed over the ISIS fighter to Gallagher for medical treatment. And Reason Magazine reports the national debt will hit unprecedented levels in the coming decades, soaring well above the record highs set during World War II and reaching nearly one and a half times the size of the entire U.S. economy by 2049. People might just shrug and say, oh, 2049, that's uh, that's not an issue today. Well, it certainly will be in 2049. And your great-grandchildren may shake their fist at this generation. This is according to the Congressional Budget Office, projected in a report released on Tuesday. And that's the optimistic view. Just imagine the projections if, well, a socialist Democrats get their way. It will be a whole different set of numbers. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll take a quick break, and we'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 19 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, Stephanie Grisham, a top aide to First Lady Melania Trump, was named Tuesday to replace Sarah Sanders as White House press secretary after a brief but competitive search for the president's next spokesperson. Grisham, who developed a reputation as a fierce defender of the First Lady during her tenure as spokeswoman, will also become the White House communications director. And Russia has dispatched several warships, including one of its newer missile frigates, to Cuba in a bid to bolster the floundering regime of Venezuelan dictator Nicolas Maduro. According to a senior administration official, we'll talk more about that later in the program, two-thirds of employees report having regrets when it comes to their advanced degrees. According to CBS News, student loan debt was the number one regret among workers with college degrees. On a related note, the Washington Examiner says the senior policy advisor for 2020 Democratic presidential candidate Bernie Sanders has a Ph.D. From Fordham University and $180,000 in student loan debt. Sanders wants to enact a massive student loan giveaway. Ben Shapiro writes that colleges for all be, um, college for all became the mantra. The government stepped into the breach. Costs rose. Now government once more steps into the breach. We're going to talk more about that later in the program when Mary Claire Amelson joins me. She's a policy analyst and we'll talk about um, the proposed student loan cancellation schemes that have been proposed by two presidential hopefuls. A new survey delving into feelings over immunizations finds the country may be more split on the issue than believed, with 45 percent of adults admitting to harboring some doubt about the safety of vaccines. And female pilots in Ireland are being told by their employers to terminate their pregnancies or their employment. On this day in 1990, President George Herbert Walker Bush goes back on his no new taxes campaign. He didn't win re-election. On this day in 1993, President Bill Clinton, who followed him, by the way, announces the U.S. has launched missiles against Iraqi targets because of compelling evidence Iraq had plotted to assassinate former President George H.W. Bush. On this day in 1997, the first Harry Potter novel, Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone by J.K. Rowling, is published in Britain. It would be released later in the U.S. under the title Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. And while you may or may not agree with the content, it was a major splash all across the country. On this day in 2015, the U.S. Supreme Court holds in a 5-4 decision that the 14th Amendment requires all states to grant same-sex marriages and recognize same-sex marriages granted in other states. And on this day in 2018, a divided Supreme Court upholds President Trump's ban on travel from several mostly Muslim countries. Also on this day in 2018, General Electric Company is removed from the Dow Jones Industrial Average, where it had been an original component 
1896. It is replaced by Walgreens drugstore chain. A big switch up there. Well, the United States hopes to relaunch trade talks with China after the president and president, president of the United States, I should say, and President Xi Jinping meet in Japan on Saturday. But Washington won't accept any conditions around the U.S. use of tariffs in the dispute, according to a senior administration official speaking yesterday. President Trump has threatened to impose tariffs on another $325 billion of goods, covering nearly all the remaining Chinese imports into the United States, including consumer products such as cell phones, computers and clothing. If the meeting with Xi produces no progress in resolving a host of U.S. complaints around the way China does business. Well, the two sides could agree not to impose new tariffs as a goodwill gesture to get negotiations going, the official said, but... Uh, it was unclear if that would ha- uh, happen. Of course, it's not clear what will happen, so that's uh, stating the obvious. The United States wasn't willing to come to the G summit uh, meeting with concessions, according to the official who spoke on condition of anonymity. Washington wants Beijing to come back to the table with the promises it withdrew before talks broke down. China has shown no softening in its position and said on Monday that both sides should make compromises in the trade talks and that a trade deal has to be beneficial for both countries. Well, the back and forth set up what could prove to be a tricky meeting between President Trump and President Xi at the Group of 20 summit, where the president is heading right now. That meeting is in Osaka, Japan. The session will be the first time they've met since trade talks between the world's two largest economies broke down in May, when the United States accused China of reneging on reform pledges it made. Meanwhile, House Democrats voted on Wednesday to subpoena White House advisor Kellyanne Conway in a fiery hearing over alleged violations of the Hatch Act. As furious Republicans called it a political spectacle and an example of double standards. The House Oversight Committee voted 25 to 16 to submit to subpoena Conway to appear before it before rather over a special counsel report finding that she violated the Hatch Act. Representative uh, Justin Amash, a Republican from Michigan, was the sole Republican to join the Democrats in what was otherwise a party line vote. The office of the special counsel, which is separate from the office with a similar name previously run by Robert Mueller, said in a scathing report this month that Conway violated the Hatch Act, disparaging Democratic presidential candidates while speaking in her official capacity during televised interviews and on social media and recommended she be fired. But the White House showed no sign of taking action against her, calling the OSC ruling unprecedented and suggesting it was politically motivated. The Hatch Act's purpose was to ensure federal programs are administered in a nonpartisan fashion to protect federal employees from political coercion in in the workplace and to ensure that federal employees are advanced based on merit and not based on political affiliation, according to the OSC. The office is an independent federal agency that monitors compliance with that law and others. Well, the vote today came after a pretty testy hearing in which Republicans and Democrats threw back and forth accusations about the findings. Chairman Elijah Cummings said the case was not about whether Conway was a good advisor, but a question of whether they obeyed the law, period. This is about right and wrong, he said. This is about the core principle of our precious democracy that nobody in this country is above. Now, again, it's always fascinating to me to see which side suddenly is elevating the importance of law when it is uh, in their best interest. And I've watched this over the years following very closely and it's really quite frustrating. Other Democratic uh, Democrats rather noted special counsel Henry Kerner was appointed by President Trump and backed his findings 
He's not a partisan. He's not a wide-eyed liberal. He's doing his job, said Representative Jerry Nadler, Connolly, rather, of Dem, um, the Democrat from Virginia. But Representative Jim Jordan, a Republican out of Ohio, said the findings were outrageous, unfair, and flat-out wrong. He also alleged double standards, saying that Obama administration employees had done the same thing but had never been found to have violated the act. He went on to say, let's be clear about the Hatch Act. Federal employees can't come to work, hand out partisan literature, hand out yard signs. Federal employees can't come to work and raise funds for a candidate or pressure subordinates to support a particular political party. But a senior advisor to the president of the United States can sure as well, heck, he said, go on cable news and answer questions. David Pluff did it. David Axelrod did it. John Podesta. They all did it for President Obama. But now it's a strong-willed Republican helping President Trump. Uh, oh, can't have that, he went on to say. Well, the back and forth will continue. The subpoena has been issued. As I mentioned, former special counsel Robert Mueller has agreed to testify before the House Judiciary and Intelligence Committees. That will be on the 17th of July after they subpoenaed the special counsel Tuesday, according to the committee's chairman, Congressional Democrats have fought to get access to Mueller and his unredacted report on Russian interference. They won't get a hold of that, but they will have Mueller in the um, uh, in the run up to efforts to get that information, which by law they are not entitled to. It's been learned that Mueller would appear only under a subpoena, which has been described as a friendly subpoena, one that in essence had been planned. Mueller is expected to stick to the four corners of his report, as he announced in a press conference just uh, days ago. And according to Jay Sekulow, who is legal counsel for the president, stunning new information just released by the American Center for Law and Justice shows that the Obama administration stepped up efforts just days before President Trump took office to undermine the incoming president and his administration. The ACLJ, where um, uh, Jay Sekulow serves as chief counsel, obtained records that show the Office of the Director of National Intelligence under Director James Clapper eagerly pushed to get new pr- uh, procedures as part of an anti-Trump effort. The procedures increased access to raw signal uh, intelligence before the conclusion of the Obama administration just days before President Trump was inaugurated. By greatly expanding access to classified information by unelected, unaccountable bureaucrats, The Obama administration paved the way for a shadowy government to leak classified information, endangering our national security and severely jeopardizing the integrity and reputation of our critical national security apparatus in an effort to undermine President Trump. No president-elect or president should be targeted in this manner, he says, and those responsible must be held accountable. Um, The documents confirmed what uh, he says was suspected. The Office of the Director of National Intelligence rushed to get the new procedure signed by the attorney general before the conclusion of that administration, referring to the Obama administration. I'm certain it's not the last that we'll hear about that. Coming up, we'll talk with uh, my next guest, Tim Shoemaker. His book is titled The Very Best Hands-On Kind of Dangerous Family Devotions, 52 Activities Your Kids Will Never forget. Let's hope they remember more than the activities, actually remember the principles being taught by them. We'll give him a chance to explain in just a few moments. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 35 minutes after four o'clock. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. My next guest is a popular author and speaker. Tim Shoemaker doesn't just teach. He shows families how to fully engage with the Bible and bring the truths of scripture to vivid life in the household, you know, where your kids are. 
Parents understand the importance of regular family devotions. However, they may find it pretty tough to get their kids fully engaged. But what if devotions looked less like sitting in the living room listening to someone read or trying to pry answers out of a reluctant kid and more like, say, electrocuting a pickle or converting a leaf blower into a toilet paper launcher or lighting toothpaste on fire? Wow. Well, his book is titled The Very Best Hands-On Kinda Dangerous Family Devotions, 52 Activities Your Kids Will Never Forget. It's filled with these kinds of fun devotions that deliver spiritual impact. Now, there's the challenge. You have the thing that's going to capture their attention, but also deliver spiritual impact. So he suggests you put away the Sunday clothes, get out the safety goggles, start bringing the truths of Scripture to life right at home. And you might even want to do that this summer. Well, Tim Shoemaker is the author of 14 books. He's um, worked as a volunteer with youth at his local church for over 25 years and speaks to thousands of students at public schools. He's a popular workshop speaker at Iron Sharpens Iron Men conferences, Moody Pastors conferences, Focus on the Family, and Great Homeschool Conventions. He lives in Rolling Meadows, Illinois, and joins us today to talk about, well, how to capture your child's attention and deliver some great eternal biblical truths. Tim Shoemaker, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. Are you with us? I don't know why I'm not hearing my guest. Uh, Clark, I'm going to put this on hold and maybe you can uh, you can fix that. Can you check that out? All right. Anyway, we're going <laughs> to we're hoping we'll have a two way conversation on the very best Hands-on, kind of dangerous family devotions, 52 activities your kids will never forget with Tim Shoemaker. Okay, we're going to try. Oh, you're going to call him again? Okay, we'll try calling him again. I just want to remind you that tonight at 7 o'clock p.m. on NBC, network television station, I guess MSNBC, NBC, and some others are also going to be moderating this whole thing. But there's a two-hour first round of Candidates for the Democrats who are vying for their party's nomination. Uh, this round includes Elizabeth Warren, but the uh, remainder of the uh, the nine are all uh, second tier candidates. And I, I'm not trying to be unflattering. They just happen to be the lesser known. So um, it's it will be interesting to see if she focuses her ire against the president, against the other candidates, against Joe Biden, who is currently leading and how these others fare. It's more important for them to do well because I'm referring to the nine. Uh, because they have a much higher bar to make it to the next round of debate. So uh, to 7 o'clock p.m. tonight, we'll try to cover some of that tomorrow on the program. But that, of course, will be followed by the same thing with the remaining 10 on Thursday. So keep that in mind. Okay, we're going to try this once again, because we really want to hear what my guest, Tim Shoemaker, has to say. Are you with us? Georgine, I am here now. See, you were <laughs> worth waiting for. So <laughs> thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'm glad to be here. I heard part of your intro, and then all of a sudden I went dead. And was like, oh, no. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> I'm technology. Back. Can't live with it. Can't live without it. Well, you have been a youth volunteer for decades. What helped you, what helped inspire you, rather, uh, to provide this kind of devotion for families who really struggle with, first of all, maybe coming to the conclusion that, yeah, family devotions should be a priority, and then how to go about having them? Well, I think... Uh, uh, one of the things was just working with the youth when, when you'd have a devotional to teach. And you've got a room of, 
teenagers, you know, you've, you've got to have something that's going to grab them. And oftentimes when you have something visual, some sort of an object lesson, um, some way of getting volunteers in, suddenly they were engaged. And then when you tie it onto the tail end of that, some little nugget of truth, uh, they got it. It was like they were etched in their mind together. And I found the same thing uh, when my wife and I started having a family and we have uh, three boys. As they were growing up, but it came to the point of trying to teach them uh, truth from the Bible, well, that was a challenge uh, because they could be just as bored. And I had probably a half a bookshelf of books that I stopped and started, things I thought, oh, this will work great. And it wasn't until I went back to that idea of going to an object lesson type of thing mm-hmm. uh, that really, really worked. And next thing you know, my kids are asking me, when are we going to have devotions again? It was a total turnaround. Oh, that's incredible. Well, let me not presume that most parents have come to the conclusion that family devotions are important. I mean, they might argue our kids are in Sunday school. Maybe they attend a youth church either on Sunday or midweek or something. Is it really all that important for me as a parent to have regular devotions in my home, and how regular should regular be? Well, it is important. Here's the thing. It's great. If they've got them in the youth group, if they've got them in Sunday school, whatever, that's really, really good. It's a good start. But that's only really meant to augment what you're doing uh, already. You think about it. What do they spend, an hour, uh, two hours a week if they've got youth group and Sunday school uh, uh, with some sort of teaching time? Not even that compared to all that time that with parents. And you think about it, oftentimes when our teens are going to struggle with issues, it's going to be in the middle of the night. It's going to be late. Who's going to be there then? It's mom and dad. And so we want to have those uh, inroads where we're already talking about spiritual things and opening up those doors uh, on a regular basis. And what is regular? Well, the Bible says we want to talk about things on a, on a daily basis. But what I'm going to suggest is a once-a-week uh, activity or an object lesson, uh, something very hands-on that parents do. And what they'll begin to find is by doing one of these things once a week, it becomes easier and easier to talk about spiritual things on a daily mm-hmm. basis. Mm-hmm. They just sort of come up, and it just, that was one of the, one of the huge benefits uh, I found of doing family devotions at home like that. Now, you mentioned using object lessons was very helpful in, and capturing your son's attention and and holding it, that certainly is a a means by which Jesus so often communicated, not just for children, but certainly for adults. So you have a good precedent for how to do that. How do you avoid the the object lesson, the fun activity, uh, becoming the focus as opposed to the message that you're trying to convey, the spiritual truth that you hope will be... um, uh, will minister to their hearts and will, will remain. Well, um, and that's, that's a really, I've never had anybody ask the question that way. Georgine, very insightful. Uh, I like that. Uh, here's, here's part of what you do. Whatever the activity is, sometimes they're going to want to, oh, let's do that again. That was so cool. Dad, let's see that again. <laughs> I'll only do it once and say, you know what? Let me, let me talk about that a little bit. And we tie it in and then, and then we're happy to repeat it as many times as they want. Otherwise, um, it could overshadow it. That's one little thing that you can do. And the other thing is you transition so smoothly right into uh, whatever that lesson is. They just become etched in their mind. Um, we end up, you know, I ran into, 
I ran into somebody uh, just the other night who had bought a book, a different book, some years back with the object lessons that I had in there, and they were telling me of one that they did. They remembered the application, everything. Uh, they just become something that's etched in your mind. So mm-hmm. a short activity, and then you move right into uh, a transition to spiritual truth. Uh, for example, let's say uh, let's say we're going to make a little marshmallow man out of uh, you know, regular-sized marshmallows and the little ones. We use little toothpicks, makes arm and legs for this little marshmallow guy, maybe three marshmallows to make the head and the body and uh, arms and legs. We put it on a paper plate, put it in the microwave, set the microwave for a couple of minutes. You're probably not going to have it in there that long. And so we <laughs> talk to the kids about, you know, you put marshmallows in the microwave and uh, – if they're stale at first, they kind of plump up a little bit. They get softer. It's actually kind of nice. But if we leave them there, well, then something happens. And they're looking in the window, and they're seeing this thing is getting grotesque. And if you leave it in long enough, you get a little flame coming out of the chest area. So uh, kids love it. Now we pull this thing out. It's this big, massive blob. And we talk about how our marshmallow man has been destroyed. Um we move right into that. You know what, uh, kids, this is a picture of pride and how we can get destroyed so quickly by pride. You know, sometimes mom or dad says to you, uh, I'm so proud of you, or you should be proud of yourself. You did so good on that. And you realize if you actually absorb that praise, you'll get puffed up with pride. The Bible's full of stories of people who got destroyed by pride. You know, we need to remember, kids, when dad or mom says, I'm so proud of you, or you should be proud of yourself, we need to remember, who gave us that opportunity? Oh, that was God. Uh, who gave us that ability? Oh, that was God. And we need to be sure that when we're getting praise, we turn that right around and give that praise to God, because that's yeah. where the credit really does go. And so, you see, and I'm doing that really, really quick, but when we put that all together, uh, it just becomes one seamless thing, and they remember uh, that object lesson and the truth just as that, right that along goes with it. Along. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll continue our conversation. We're talking about the very best hands-on kind of dangerous family devotions, 52 activities your kids will never forget. Be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 51 minutes after 4 o'clock is our time. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. And I'm continuing my conversation with prolific author Tim Shoemaker. His latest book, The Very Best Hands-On Kind of Dangerous Family Devotions. And it features 52 activities your kids will never forget. Now, this might work for you on a daily basis as a family living in your primary home. It might work for grandparents if you are an aunt or an uncle. And for a week, you have the kids and you want to do something special every day, this is a great resource. You don't have to come up with the clever ideas that can convey a spiritual truth. Or maybe something happened in the house and you think, I need to do something on anger. And you come up with this book and you uh, leaf through it and find an activity on anger and a devotion. Just a great resource for families uh, to help um, have devotions for their kids. Now, I, um, I wanted to ask you um, some of the spiritual issues that kids face. We might underestimate the challenges they face and some of the issues that relate to faith that kids today might just, in the course of everyday kid life, uh, confront. What are some of those things? Well, there's so many. Uh, you know, you just think about basic temptation uh, with pornography being so accessible uh, to the kids now. Uh, they can have it within seconds. 
um, selfishness, uh, a tremendous it's all about me attitude that uh, is so pervasive uh, with our kids. Pride, um, they're uh, often seeking escapes and they can get that so easily on their phone, all different types of escapes. So um, just we need to get ways to engage them and just to help them think. And sometimes it takes some kind of an activity where their mind is freed from every other little distraction that they've got going. And then we tie this negative truth in on the end and uh, give them something to think about Mm -hmm. uh, for a long, long time. Mm -hmm. Now you mentioned you have three sons. What about families with kids with a wide uh, variety of ages? That can be a challenge. We've got a five-year-old and we have a preteen. Is it possible to do devotions that will hold the attention of both ends of that continuum and convey the message that will serve them well as they grow, uh, as they grow older. Um, you know what the the easy answer is yes, but I would I would just couch that a little bit to say you want your target to be your oldest always. So oftentimes we want to make sure that our youngest is getting it. But as soon as we do that, and we've got uh, an older one there, say 12, 13, 14 years old, whatever. Suddenly, that older one thinks that the devotions are below them. It's kid stuff. They're going to check out mentally. You may not get them back in for that that devotional. You may not get them back in the next time either because they think it's for kids. So my recommendation is always target your oldest. Now, it's not like you're just talking only at them, but you're keeping it at their level because you've got less time with them mm-hmm. and they're closer to the bigger dangers. And so we keep it at their level. Now, when we're done with the devotion, we've tied that nugget of truth in there, that spiritual application. And we might say to our oldest, uh, let's say, Georgine, you're my oldest. I might say, okay, Georgine, hey, we're all done here. Um, you know, you can go ahead and, and, uh, uh, if you'd like, I'm going to have your little sister stay here for a few minutes. I want to make sure she understood what we were talking about. And then I can bring that down to her level uh, just a little bit more. So I would always keep your devotional at the highest level you've got of kids in the room. Well, that's really wise counsel. And I think the younger ones who aspire to be like their elder siblings would probably um, be more likely to be attentive because they aspire to being more like their uh, their older brothers and sisters. Um, what would you suggest in a household where maybe one parent is very excited at the uh, prospect of having devotions in the household, whereas the other is not? I don't want to speculate, but I would imagine women might be more enthusiastic than their husbands might be. And again, I'm generalizing, but what do you do when you have uh, an imbalance in terms of um, the parents and who's enthusiastic and who's not? Okay, so if let's let's assume that they're both Christians. Uh, if we can go that far. And uh, as long as we've got that, you know, oftentimes understanding where a dad is at, uh, they can be afraid, afraid that uh, they're not qualified, afraid that they won't do an adequate job. They're afraid the kids will ask them a question that they won't be able to answer. So all these fear things, uh, and oftentimes the enemies are sort of whispering in their ear, hey, who are you to teach the kids anything? You know what you've done. And so uh, often a man, a dad, can avoid it. But if we help them see that this can be right in their comfort zone, uh, it will go a long way to help them get over that hump. So, for example, let's say we're going to do some kind of a uh, activity. It might be a mom who looks through the book. She says, oh, this looks like a great activity. And she might ask her husband, hey, can you help by picking up these supplies? 
and he can maybe practice it once to make sure he's got it. He may lead the activity. And it might start out that mom actually kind of leads that tie-in afterwards. What do the kids see? Mom and dad working together to teach a nugget of truth. And that works for the kids, and it'll work for most dads. When a dad doesn't feel it's all being dumped on him, and if he feels his wife is going to be there with him, what you'll generally find is he relaxes, and we keep it in his comfort zone, and in time, he'll probably take more and more uh, of that responsibility. Yeah. So I would work it together. Yeah, that's that's good. Well, let's talk about um, a favorite devotion from the book that you uh, can share with our listeners who don't have the benefit of holding it in their hands as I do. Well, um, oh boy, there's so many. One is fun. Uh, you can take a typical leaf blower, and it takes about 10 minutes. You can convert this thing. Uh, to shoot toilet paper. And it is so fun. Uh, you can take a, like a roll of thousand sheets, single ply, and unload that entire thing in one continuous stream in about 10 seconds or less. And, and it'll just shoot nice and high. You'll shoot it across the room. Uh, and we, everything we do, of course, we're going to tie in some nugget of truth. And with that particular one, uh, we start the kids with a little toilet paper race, you know, just holding that spool in their fingers and seeing that they can unload it. You take one of the kids and say, uh, you know, let's say you're the one that we're going to do it special with. Georgie and I are going to do it a little different. We're going to do it special. In fact, we're going to have two rolls, and we're going to race the rest of you only having to do one roll. You guys go ahead and get a head start, and they get going. They're trying to unload that thing, and, uh, and now all of a sudden we pull out a leaf blower that's been converted. We just put a little paint roller on the end. <laughs> we drop that roll of toilet paper on there, turn it on, unloads this thing, and then we reload, put the next one on, and they're still struggling to empty the first roll, and we've done two. And we go right into that spiritual application. Oftentimes in life, we're trying really hard. We're struggling to get something done, uh, to do something, to become something, whatever it is, doing our best. We couldn't go any faster. We couldn't work any harder than they were working doing that toilet paper. But what a difference it is with doing things on our own is it would be working with the Holy Spirit. When we have the Holy Spirit flowing in us and through us, he can do things that we never dreamed possible. And so just like they wouldn't have expected we were going to beat them with a converted leaf blower, the Holy Spirit does things inside us, like changes our heart. Things that were once impossible become very easy, like forgiving others or loving others. Things like that because he works in this. So uh, something like uh, using a uh, leaf blower with a quick and easy conversion that you can turn right back to a leaf blower again, uh, we can teach nuggets of truth. Oh, so we've got all kinds of things. Yeah, that and that's just one of so many great examples in the book, The Very Best Hands-On, Kind of Dangerous Family Devotions. It's published by Ravel, and I would certainly recommend it if you're looking for creative ways to impart spiritual truth that will remain. Tim Shoemaker, thank you so much for your creativity and your time this afternoon. Hey, thank you very much, Georgine. God bless. We're going to take a break. We've got, what, news and traffic coming up at the top of the hour, but we'll be back. And also in the 5 o'clock hour, we'll talk with Mary Claire Amelson. She's a policy analyst. We'll talk about student loan cancellation schemes. What might that do to the students, to the schools, to the economy? You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. In this hour, we'll talk with Mary Claire Amsalem, she's a policy analyst in education policy studies, 
And we're going to talk about the uh, proposed student loan cancellation schemes of Bernie Sanders and uh, his rival, Elizabeth Warren. What impact that would likely have on uh, institutions of higher learning, students, as well as the U.S. economy. That's coming up at the bottom of the 5 o'clock hour. Well, I think I misspoke earlier and said that the uh, debates among the first 10 uh, Democrats begins at 7. It actually begins at 6 o'clock p.m. on NBC, so I apologize for that. The debates will begin at 6. It's a two-hour event, and you'll have an opportunity to hear from uh, 10 of the candidates. So some of the questions that are circulating about around these uh, two evenings is will Joe Biden appear out of step with today's progressives? That's his concern. Will Elizabeth Warren struggle with questions over her ancestry claims? Should they come up? Will Bernie Sanders show irritation with the questions? Uh, there are 20 candidates. They're crowding the first debate stage for the um, cycle over the next two nights. The Democrats running for president will be fighting for every second of airtime because that's just about all they're getting each hoping for a standout moment that distinguishes them from their rival. They also have to compete with the moderators who may be looking to make a name for themselves as well. So let's hope their primary goal is to feature and highlight the candidates rather than themselves. They're also hoping these precious moments of attention in Miami won't shine a light on their apparent political weaknesses as they seek to convince Democratic voters they are the best to take on President Trump in 2020. Preparing for this debate, uh, Donna Brazil, who is a former Democratic National Committee leader, said that preparing for this debate, the candidates have to figure out a way to basically stand out and to also draw a contrast with each other. That's going to be a challenge with so little time. And while some Democrats may be able to use the debate to get out of the so-called box, uh, she says other candidates might prove they uh, may be um, this may be their uh, their last time. Uh, some of the things to consider with Elizabeth Warren, one of the front runners who's going to be featured tonight is uh, Elizabeth Warren is a progressive favorite. She's a senator from Massachusetts. She's uh, seen her poll numbers rise in recent weeks as she sought to portray herself as a wonkish policy focused candidate coming out with specific initiatives that she would like to see implemented if she were given the, the nomination. But she still can't shake the controversy over her past claims of Native American ancestry. Now, she's going to be in a very um, favorable audience. She's going to be speaking to um, moderators who are favorable to her party and have uh, advocated for the Democrats quite aggressively. So that may not be an issue. But while Trump has uh, repeatedly dismissed her, uh, it's not just Republicans asking her questions about her past claims. So whether or not that comes up um, uh, remains to be seen. She's explained that the reason she claimed ancestry in the past was because she was told about her heritage from her family. She's denied benefiting from that ancestry claim. So that may be one of the trickier things. But again, this is a favorable audience asking, or I should say a, a panel of moderators asking questions of 10 candidates, one of whom they hope will unseat Donald Trump. Uh, but that begins tonight at 6 o'clock p.m. on NBC. Meanwhile, Democratic leaders and mainstream media who have essentially been in lockstep uh, have called the situation along the U.S.-Mexico border manufactured, but it's now being recognized as a crisis. Now, they've shifted the focus to it not being a crisis to one of uh, President Trump's making, but it actually began back in 2014. But that's a whole nother story we don't have time 
to trace. Mainstream media and congressional Democrats uh, were in lockstep just months ago that the situation along the southern border was a manufactured crisis being ginned up by the president for political reasons. But the narrative has uh, swiftly shifted to as those same voices now acknowledge the crisis while citing the conditions to attack the Trump administration. It's a striking contrast between then and now, and one would hope that ultimately that would result in initiatives that would address the core issues of the problem, but I don't think we've gotten quite that far yet. Well, after President Trump in January declared a humanitarian and security crisis during a primetime Oval Office address, Senator Chuck Schumer, speaking beside House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, said the president was working to manufacture a crisis, stoke fear, and divert attention from the turmoil in his administration. Party leader Tom Perez also called it manufactured, as did many in the media. Democrats, many of whom downplayed the Central American caravans back in 2018, renewed their skepticism again after the president declared a national emergency in February in pursuit of a border wall. Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez described it as a crisis that doesn't exist. She was at the fence, uh, what, yesterday, uh, weeping at a crisis that doesn't exist. Senator Elizabeth Warren tweeted at the time that we're not falling for the fake crisis. CNN's Jim Acosta famously stood along the Mexican border only six months ago, patting the steel slats and declaring he didn't see anything resembling immigrant danger or migrants trying to enter the United States. Well, the narrative has certainly shifted since then. Acosta said no sign of the national emergency that the president has been talking about. Pretty tranquil down here. CNN's Kristen Powers told Anderson Cooper last December that the entire Higher thing is something that's been manufactured to basically gin up support for uh, the wall. Well, it goes on from there. Uh, fortunately, we know that the Senate has now passed the bill that at least addresses the humanitarian crisis. The House version, the president has already threatened to veto because it has what they refer to on the Republican side as poison pills that don't address the core issues of the now acknowledged crisis. So the um, issues are at least now being acknowledged as existing, um, but whether or not the solutions to um, ameliorate those problems are uh, going to be a part of the conversation remains to be seen. Meanwhile, uh, meanwhile, rather, Wayfair employees walked out over uh, the border detention facilities order that they were charged with filling. I, I'm having a difficult time understanding their logic. I understand if they are opposed to the centers and uh, believe they're not being handled properly. Um, the truth is those who are handling those centers agree and they say we need more resources to help us do a better job. But a group of employees in Boston walked out in protest of their company supplying contractors with furniture for border f- detention facilities housing migrants and primarily children. The executives opened a new um, uh, said that they should uh, resist the urge to rush for a solution to an escalating dispute with company employees who staged the walkout to protest the business dealings. Uh, it uh, began at 1.30 Easter time today, uh, days after employees learned that Wayfair planned to sell $200,000 worth of furniture uh, to a nonprofit pr- contractor that operates immigration detention facilities at the southern border. Now, they are opposed to the fact that these facilities exist at all, and I suppose the alternative would be to simply allow people to migrate into the country with the expectation that they would... Um, I'm not really sure what the logic is there, but nonetheless, these beds were primarily for detention centers that house children. And the law, as you might recall, and I won't go over it in detail, requires that uh, adults be maintained in custody for a period of time. And it was decided by Congress that children 
it was not in their best interest for them to be detained for the same length of time. So they would have to be separated from their parents while the bureaucracy dealt with the adults and the children in a different manner. Um, All of that was initially prescribed by Congress and Congress has the authority to do something about it, um, but has chosen not to because I found in Washington Sometimes there are crises that are just too good to resolve because they make for such great political uh, critiques for the other side. I'm not suggesting one side does it and the other doesn't. It's just a a means that politicians have um, used for decades to um, oppose their uh, political rivals. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 18 minutes after 5 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Liberty Coin and Currency. Well, the new government report has given us a glimpse into our nation's fiscal future, and the outlook is, well, grim. Absent major reforms, America's debt will only continue to balloon. No big news there. The Congressional Budget Office released its updated long-term budget reports yesterday, and it projects the nation's fiscal situation for the next 30 years, should things continue on their current course. Despite the strong economy, the nation remains in a precarious and unsustainable budget position, just as it was last year. Debt held by the public is set to rise to nearly one and a half times the size of the economy in the coming decades. The report also highlights the high stakes of issues sitting before Congress, namely whether or not lawmakers pass another budget deal to raise spending caps for fiscal year 2020 and beyond. The current proposal put forth by House Democrats would raise spending by at least $357 billion over two years, driving long-term debt even higher. The bottom line is this. If Congress is to avoid a debt crisis, it has to implement strong spending restraints now. Now, how likely do you think that is? Yeah, not very likely. Well, the first step is to reject the deal proposed um, on the House side. Instead, Congress ought to prioritize essential federal functions like national defense, um, wasteful spending, duplicative uh, domestic programs that the federal government should have uh, no role in. Over the long term, cuts to discretionary spending won't be enough to stabilize the debt. We're past that. The true drivers of debt are our major entitlement programs, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid. Reforming these programs is essential if the country is to avoid a debt crisis and preserve these programs for the long term. Um, But uh, it doesn't seem likely that this time around, like the last time and the time before that, um, Congress was unwilling to take these issues on. The national debt continues to grow at an unsustainable rate. Another budget deal will make things worse. Uh, The timing of reform matters and entitlements and interest on the debt are driving spending growth. Some things to keep in mind as you're considering which among the candidates you think should be the next president of the United States. Well, Project Veritas recorded undercover videos showing a Google executive discussing how to prevent Donald Trump from winning re-election. We all got screwed over in 2016. Again, it wasn't just us. It was the people got screwed over. The news media got, when it goes on from there, like everybody. Uh, so we're rap- uh, we are rapidly been like, happened there and how do we prevent it from happening again the google executive uh, said well project veritas identified the google executive as jen uh, janai the head of responsible innovation we're also training our algorithms like if 2016 happened again would we have would the outcome be different she reportedly said well another google insider said they are bent on never letting somebody like donald trump come to power again 
end quote. I hope um, I hope you understand why um, why this has become such an important uh, issue. Uh, they went on to say, now, you may agree with the sentiment. You may think that uh, you don't want to see Donald Trump occupy or anyone like him occupy the Oval Office again. But do we agree that Google should not be manipulating by virtue of uh, how they direct traffic, uh, what uh, subscribers see and don't see, how they get to where they want to go, um, that Google should not be making that determination and that we should all be a bit skeptical about some of the um, the worldwide web highways, if you will, to getting uh, information or failing to access information. Well, Project uh, Veritas obtained this newly leaked document from Google as well that appears to show a Google employee and a member of Google's uh, transparency and ethics group calling conservative and libertarian commentators, including Dennis Prager and Ben Shapiro, Nazis. Well, Project Veritas received the document after the release of its investigation into Google through the Be Brave campaign at Veritas Tips. Well, the email apparently was sent as part of the Google Transparency and Ethics Group's internal communications and suggests that content from PragerU, which is about as innocuous as you can get, Jordan Peterson and Ben Shapiro should be disabled from the suggestion feature. We understand that PragerU, Jordan Peterson, Ben Shapiro et al. are Nazis using the dog whistles, they wrote. I don't think correctly identifying far-right content is beyond our capabilities, they went on to say. But if it is, why not go with Meredith's suggestion of disabling the suggestion feature? So you may assume that you have access to information that can direct you to uh, presenters that you're interested in, but that may not be the case. If uh, Project Veritas and these newly leaked documents are to be believed. Well, after the release of the Google investigation, Google senior executive Jen Jenai posted on um, Medium saying Google has reportedly been clear that it works to be a trustworthy source of information without regard to political viewpoint. In fact, Google has no notion of political ideology in its rankings. Well, that seems to conflict with other information that has been uncovered. Well, the leaked document appears to contradict Janai's claim that Google has no notions of political ideology in its search rankings. Well, the video was pulled down by YouTube, citing privacy violations. Viewers can still watch the video um, in other places. Project Veritas, uh, I believe, has the, uh, the video there as well. But just know that uh, what we are being told is innocuous, um, apolitical, fair, open-minded forum may not be quite that. Meanwhile, Russia has dispatched several warships, including one of its newer missile frigates, to Cuba in a bid to bolster the floundering regime of Venezuelan dictator Nicolas Maduro, according to a senior administration official. Anytime any Russian military platform arrives in the Western Hemisphere, we're taking a very close look at it, the official told the Washington Free Beacon. U.S. intelligence agencies first identified the small Russian naval task force headed by the guided missile frigate Admiral Gorskov in the eastern Pacific around the 11th of this month and followed the warship through the Panama Canal. The ships showed up in Havana's harbor on Monday, and the official said it may conduct a passage near Venezuela or make port um, there after it leaves the Cuban waters. Support vessels included the logistics vessel, um, a medium sea tanker, a rescue tug, according to the Russian Navy. Well, the official said the Gorskov is one of the newer Russian warships, but noted that it's probably lucky it made it um, all the way across the Pacific Ocean. The dispatch of the naval group is sending a signal by pulling into Havana at the same time that everything is going on in Venezuela. Now, what the suggestion is that this 
is uh, to suggest the possibility of another Cuban missile crisis. And that's an overstatement of what's happened up to this point. But a Russian presence in Cuba and its connection with Venezuela, where they're propping up the leadership, has certainly raised concerns. There's no surprise that they would do that intentionally to kind of remind us they perceive they have some sort of leverage in the region. The uh, administration official uh, went on to say, additionally, a Russian Air Force um, Il-62 uh, transport brought in technicians to work on Russian military equipment used by the Venezuelans. That sends a signal in its own right, the official said. You've got millions of people starving in Venezuela. You've got no medicine, uh, no electricity. You've got gas shortages, lines for miles, and you're paying the Russians to come in and fix really old hardware, money that certainly should be used for humanitarian aid in Quote, the Il-62 brought both military personnel and equipment, but no humanitarian aid. By contrast, the USS Comfort, a hospital ship, recently crossed through the Panama Canal on the way to Ecuador to provide medical relief. Elliot Abrams, U.S. Special Representative for Venezuela, told reporters that instead of caring for millions of poor, sick and hungry citizens, the Maduro regime is spending millions on military goods. We learned recently of a $38 million purchase of military uniforms, Abrams went on to say. In May, Venezuela signed a $209 million air defense contract with Russia to repair an air defense system to buy nine Shukhoi fighter jets and to buy eight transport helicopters. The regime also continues giving foreign aid to Cuba, providing oil without payment in exchange unless the payment is uh, the representative intelligence apparatus manned by about 2,500 Cuban agents that Cuba maintains in Venezuela to help keep the regime in power, again, propping up Maduro. Well, the comfort, he said, will provide medical care to Venezuelan refugees and local residents, while Russia is sending its warships to uh, the Gorshkov and more military technicians to Venezuela, a contrast to the response to the needs of the Venezuelan people. Coming up, we'll hear from Mary Claire Amselm. She is a policy analyst. We're going to talk about the proposed student loan cancellation schemes of two of the Democratic candidates. What might that mean for students, for the universities, for the economy? Up next. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. My next guest, writing for the Daily Signal, writes that young Americans are being crushed by student loan debt. I think we can all at least agree on that point. Unfortunately, a new bailout proposal wouldn't help them much in the long run. Now, lots of people think, you know, if I could just get my student loan uh, eliminated, life would be good again. But is there more to the story? Well, here to talk with us about that is Mary Claire um, Amsalem. She is a policy analyst, education policy studies at the Institute for Family, Community and Opportunity at the Heritage Foundation. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Well, you wrote a piece uh, primarily about the proposal that was announced by Bernie Sanders on Monday uh, and uh, introduced uh, also by Representative Ilhan uh, Omar, legislation that would wipe out every dollar of student debt in the United States. It would eliminate it for roughly 45 million Americans. And the proposal would make public colleges and community colleges tuition Free Now, this sounds like a panacea. It would be the answer to so many problems. And if if you're carrying uh, student loan debt, this might sound like a great idea. What what is this proposal not saying about its costs and its impact on higher education? Yeah, well, as you mentioned, it's certainly an attractive offer. And I know many people, including myself, uh, we would definitely benefit from something like this. However, it is a little bit more complicated for several Mm -hmm. reasons. 
One, one, uh, the, the plan is being sold that the, there will be attacks on Wall Street or with uh, Senator uh, Warren's proposal, for example, that she introduced a couple of months ago. She said that it will be an ultra-millionaire's tax. But we know from history when things like this have been tried that they, one, end up costing far more than expected, and two, that these taxes have a negative effect on our economy. We see right now the economy is doing better than ever. People have, uh, you know, overwhelming faith in, in the stock market, and, and this is not the time to, to mess with that. Uh, I, I think that inevitably uh, free college will cost more than, than it's expected, and so will loan forgiveness. And so the middle class will inevitably start feeling this, both through detrimental effects on the economy and through the inevitable tax increases that will have to come when, when, uh, when uh, these things become more expensive. Now, you write that the reason schools keep raising their tuition is that students have easy access to federal student loans, and the federal government essentially has a monopoly on this, or a near monopoly on this uh, this money, and that bailing out um, student loan uh, debtors would not so much benefit the students, or the country for that matter, but would benefit the colleges. Can you explain sort of how we got there and, and why uh, schools keep raising their tuition? Sure. So the federal government now controls about 90% of all student loans. And this wasn't always the case. We've seen the, the federal government's role in uh, being a student loan provider increase over time. Uh, and in 2010, uh, President Obama got rid of the, the, the bank's role in distributing these loans and made the, the Department of Education uh, the primary lender of student loans, so virtually nationalizing the program. And so private lenders control, you know, just, you know, 9, 10% of that market share. And so they're not really able to compete and offer, you know, competitive interest rates with these federal loans. And so what colleges and universities know is that students have uh, this very easy access to federal aid. And so if they raise their tuition year after year, students aren't as price sensitive. And then, you know, once tuition does get high, then the federal government can come in and raise the, the loan limits and allow students to take out more money. And so it's definitely setting a bad incentive for schools to raise their tuition. And I say we're giving them a a virtual blank check. Uh, It will become an actual blank check if we make college tuition free. We'll be rewarding these schools for increasing their their tuition year after year. That's not commensurate with an increase in academic quality, I might add. Uh, And even though students wouldn't be paying out of their own pockets for, uh, for free college if this proposal were to pass, uh, the, the increase that it costs to educate them will inevitably go up, and schools will be sending that bill to American taxpayers rather than students. You also write about the negative impact on the economy imposed by these uh, kinds of taxes that have been proposed to cover the cost of all of this, that those uh, the negative impact would outweigh any perceived benefit. Uh, talking about uh, Americans who perhaps aren't carrying a loan debt, what impact is this likely to have across the board um, on on the economy, on jobs, on um, investors, and so on. Yeah, so I'm I'm not a tax expert myself, but the, uh, at the Heritage Foundation where where I work, uh, we've done a lot of work on on this issue, and we've seen that that a tax on Wall Street trading, a, a 0.5 percent tax on, on trades, is actually quite large and will have a huge effect uh, on the daily trades that that happen uh, in, in our stock market. And like I mentioned before, the market's doing fantastic right now. Uh, people have great confidence in the strength of our economy. We should keep going with that trend rather than imposing more taxes that we see have, have really negative effects uh, on the economy that will be felt by everyone. Now, as you mentioned, one of the reasons tuition has gone up is because there's an incentive when you have ready access to federal money. Um, it's an incentive to increase taxes. You have this guarantee, if you will. 
Um, what's the best way to lower tuition and encourage colleges to provide a high-quality education that's actually affordable? Yeah, so the first step would certainly be uh, elim- limiting, if not eliminating, uh, the federal government's role in, in student lending. As I as I laid out before, it has all of these unintended consequences, uh, the, the most uh, uh, prudent of which is that uh, it, it raises tuition. So inserting the private market back into the game would put downwards pressure on tuition prices and encourage schools to step up their game and start competing for students and trying to offer the best education at the best price. We simply don't see that happening now. Um, There are also complete alternatives to the loan system altogether that uh, I think we should be encouraging. There are some schools that are um, experimenting with something called an income share agreement, where the school covers the cost of your attendance up front, but then you sign a contract agreeing to pay them back in a percentage of your future earnings. Uh, That is uh, beneficial for a number of reasons. Uh, the school is then heavily invested in making sure that they educate you uh, the best way possible so that you become a high earner once you leave their doors because they want to get their money back. And, and so having schools get a little skin in the game uh, would certainly be beneficial. And then a student would, uh, you know, have a really good idea of what they're getting into. Uh, if they sign into an income share agreement, the school would say to them, well, this is what we expect you to be earning your first year out of graduation. I think the vast majority of students who take out loans to go to college have no idea what they should be expecting in terms of their earnings once they graduate. Now, I know that um, certainly in my day, uh, going on to college university was uh, considered the only real viable solution to having um, access to good jobs and, and higher income. That's not the case so much uh, these days for everyone. To what degree is this push to higher education for students who uh, perhaps um, uh, might thrive in other um, uh, using some other um, course. Um, To what degree uh, does this play into uh, this notion that uh, tuition is high, students and and the the, um, confidence in the degree and the student loans that are required to get that degree are uh, starting to and continue to drop? Yeah, I'm really happy you brought that up because I think that that often gets lost in this conversation. I think that Behind the, these proposals for free college, uh, it, it's operating under the premise that, that college is uh, to the benefit of everyone. And we know that that's not true. We know that 40% of students don't graduate in six years. So that, that's a shocking number. And you would think, wow, I bet a lot of those, other, those students would be better served by alternative programs. Or there are people who go through the whole process of college and then they graduate and then they realize, oh, wait, my skills that I, that I learned in college do not match up to the needs of the job market and they have trouble finding a job. I think that we need to be talking about college alternatives and not simply in a way that, that are considered less than, but, but you know, equally attractive, high-quality options that simply avoid a lot of the fluff that comes along with a four-year bachelor's degree that gets students from A to B, you know, B being a, a career, uh, without uh, the, the costly uh, uh, cost of tuition and without uh, wasting a lot of money on courses that don't help them get their career goals. Well, I hope um, these proposals are uh, starting a conversation across the country about how the system works now, what we need to do to change that, and certainly the cost of higher education, but alternatives that uh, would be a perfect fit for a, a significant number of students who are graduating from high school. Hey, thank you so much for joining us, Mary Claire. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much. Anytime. Again, Mary Claire Amsalem is a policy analyst in education policy studies at the Institute for Family, Community, and Opportunity 
at the Heritage Foundation. We'll be back in just a moment to wrap things up. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. There's an interesting phenomenon I wanted to talk with you about. It's the fact that Internet preachers are on the rise as more worshipers are migrating online and away from the pews. With more than 800,000 followers on Facebook, one such online preacher, a Chicago-based Internet preacher and U.S. Army veteran Marcus Rogers has an audience on social media that's much greater than popular uh, established churches like Rick Warren's Saddleback Church. It's just about 300,000 shy of Joel Olstein's Texas-based Lakewood Church of 1.1 million followers. Now, followers doesn't legitimize one's ministry. It doesn't say if you are biblically sound, if you're a good Bible teacher and, and so on. It doesn't say that your listeners are growing deep in their uh, faith and their walk with Christ and their understanding of the scriptures. It just says that you appeal to large numbers of people. So I'm not, to, by bringing this up, suggesting that folks who can attract an audience a large audience represents uh, the kind of uh, leader that the scripture says we ought to uh, to seek. But nonetheless, it is a phenomenon, and I wanted to share it with you. Says Rogers, I am just a nobody telling, uh, trying to tell everybody about somebody who can save anybody. His name is Jesus, Rogers said. He turns 33 next month. He declares boldly in the introduction to his page, which uh, you have to follow in order to get the latest updates. Uh, with one click, his latest words of wisdom for Christian living is delivered in a written uh, form on videos, uh, which often rake wreck, uh, wreck in millions of views. People choose to follow people who are portraying the version of Christianity that they're comfortable with, he warned in a veiled shot, perhaps, about the growing and diverse industry of Internet preachers and online ministries. Everybody's claiming to be a Christian isn't a Christian. Everyone claiming to have the word from God doesn't really have one. It's dangerous to just follow anybody claiming to be a Christian, says uh, one um, critic. Uh, Thaddeus Matthews. Well, in recent years, various social platforms and other online technology amplified the voices of a variety of controversial Internet preachers, ranging from more conservative ones like Rogers to the profane, like the cussing pastor. That's what he calls himself, Thaddeus Matthews. And as the population of the unchurched continues to grow, some church experts say their data reflect a growing engagement among the faithful with ministries online, with some even choosing to fellowship exclusively on the Internet. Now, one of the downsides, which I suppose you could argue in many brick and mortar churches as well, is there's no accountability. You don't know the actual life of the individual who is uh, speaking or preaching or teaching, however you want to describe it. Lucinda Rojas Ross, um, central team leader of the communications of the Craig Groeschel led Life dot church. That spans 32 campuses in 10 states. These are brick and mortar says since starting their church online platform more than 10 years ago, engagement has grown exponentially. Our decision to create church online in April 2006 was driven uh, out of a heart to reach people where they are at life church or actually at life dot church. We believe God has called us to use the technology available to us today to spread the gospel to as many people as we can. There are more than 7 billion people on this earth, and as long as there is one hurting person who doesn't know Christ, we know our job isn't done, he shared in the Christian Post in a recent statement. Well, Life.ChurchOnline has allowed us to reach people who likely would have never walked through the doors of a church building. Now, one of the things I would uh, ask is whether or not an online church like life.churchonline 
encourages people to develop a relationship with Christ, do they then encourage those individuals to engage in fellowship with fellow believers at a brick and mortar church where there is accountability, where we learn to love one another shoulder to shoulder and we are taught face to face. Well, she explains that Life.Church online community is made up of different types of people, including those who are outside the physical reach of the church, prefer to explore their interest in spirituality in an online context. People who are part of our church but are looking for an option to worship together because they are traveling or displaced. And people who prefer to experience much of their community in an online context, which I'm not sure could be characterized as experiencing community in an online context. Though community and fellowship looks different in an online environment, we found that many people are more off open rather and feel more comfortable sharing details that they might hesitate to share in a face-to-face conversation. Well, that's certainly true with online social media in general. People say and do things they would never conscience saying uh, to one's face. Now that may be things of kindness, but more often it is a uh, harshness that reveals itself online that one doesn't necessarily exhibit in person. She goes on to say, though community and fellowship looks different in an online environment, we found that people are more open and feel more comfortable. We don't expect church online to be the same thing for each person. For some, online ministry is a supplement to help them stay connected to their church when they can't attend and so on. Well, Rogers says that his messages resonate with his followers Because uh, like their de facto spiritual leader, many have struggled to find their place in traditional churches. I've pretty much been in church my whole life, he told um, uh, Christian Post. My mother was a German woman, single woman with four mixed kids. So everywhere we kind of went, we were kind of always the outsiders. In black churches, they looked at us kind of funny. In white churches, she wasn't married, a single mom. Without his father and outside the status of his family, he struggled to find his niche. Now, that's an indictment against the church. It certainly isn't uh, a, a suggestion that we don't make things happen that aren't currently happening in the church. But he goes on to say, I didn't have people that were raised up in the church as friends that I could depend on. The Bible says there is safety in a multitude of counseling. So I kind of felt like I was just in a position where I had to learn everything the hard way, marriage, relationships. I didn't know anything about women or anything. I was deployed to Iraq, deployed to Afghanistan and went through just so much mess in my life. It was so bad at one point I wanted to kill myself because I was just like my life is just not working and I have nobody I could talk to. I can't just call the pastor. I can't just call my dad. He added, well, desperate for direction and not ready to die. Uh, Rogers, who is the father of five children now, says he began calling on the Lord for help. When the Lord began responding several years ago while he was on deployment in South Korea, he said his life began to change. Instead of trying to kill himself, what he says he then did was uh, to fall on his faith and to cry out to the Lord. He was inspired. He soon decided that he would start publicly sharing some of what God was revealing to him. And he realized there were people out there like him. He quietly began posting his video messages on social media when about five years ago, it fell uh, in the fall rather of 2014. One of them billed, I will drown myself, went viral. All right. Before he left for Korea, the Lord spoke something to him and he knew uh, that he needed to continue. He started having these thoughts that people were going to think he was crazy by uh, posting some of his stories, but did so anyway. Well, the ministry is now so popular and lucrative that Rogers left the army last fall to commit to the ministry full time. 
Now, it's interesting. Does he think of himself as a pastor? He is someone who has not been discipled in a church. He has not been uh, trained in any other forum as as far as um, what we can determine from his story, and yet has established a church with many, many followers. Now, he certainly is an inspirational speaker. He has something to say about how God transformed his life. But I wonder if he is encouraging men and women who are uh, committed to his work and uh, his lucrative work, and I'm not suggesting that's his motivation, but he was able to quit his job, if he is encouraging them to then um, spend their time in uh, in church. He says, when I meet people face-to-face, that's the number one thing they uh, say, because I was vulnerable, they were able to connect with me, the transparency, I was more authentic to them, and then when they uh, look at me, um, they feel like, well, if he can make it, then I can make it. Uh, People are tired of, and this is not all churches, but a lot of churches just fake it, he says. They want to uh, look like they've got it all together, but they're struggling. Now, it's uh, it's possible to fake it on the Internet. It's possible to fake it on the platform behind a pulpit. Uh, Authenticity is uh, something I think most people struggle with, and certainly those in positions of influence may struggle with as well. I'm not sure the Internet is the answer, but it is. it does raise some important questions about what um, Jesus meant when he said the gates of hell would not prevail uh, against my church. Was this kind of technology uh, community uh, one of the things that he had in mind? Is this a lesser expression of the body of Christ? Is this the church? Uh, again, some very interesting um, uh, questions uh, to consider. Now, I don't have time to go through the uh, the whole uh, thing, but uh, despite the success of his online ministry, Rogers says in the beginning he never had the support of more traditional pastors. That is changing somewhat, perhaps because of the popularity of the online forum, which is growing, uh, and so on. But as uh, potential p- parishioners, whether we're seeking f- um, community online or in a brick and mortar church, we need to ask the serious questions about whether or not what I am doing. Um, in the form of church and fellowship is consistent with what God had in mind. I'm not suggesting I have the answer, but I do think it's important for us to consider the important questions about uh, what God intends for us. It's much more challenging and difficult to actually come together in physical proximity to one another where we're forced to work things out that may be difficult for us. Um, But it seems to me that's a part of what it means to be Um, in the body of Christ and iron sharpening iron. If we can't learn to love one another in the proximity of fellowship in a church, to reconcile with one another, to resolve our differences, I'm not sure how on earth, quite literally, we're going to be able to love those who would set themselves up as our enemies. Again, something to think about, a phenomenon that is growing in the 21st century. Tomorrow on the program, we're going to talk with Samuel Gregg. Dr. Gregg is going to talk with us about his book, Reason, Faith, and the Struggle for Western Civilization. We're also going to talk with Alex McFarland. Looking forward to that. Hope you'll join us. I want to thank James Blend for producing, Clark Hilton for engineering today's program, and thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. 
Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.